Hey everybody, this is Sam Ashu again. Welcome back to Amplify. You will recall that our last episode was one half of our recording with Dr. Ryan Pedigo about ventilator management for adults in the emergency department. Today we're going to listen to part two. In part one, we covered some of the basics of settings and management of patients with COPD and asthma. And today we're going to get into some of the nuances of patients with ARDS and especially patients with COVID-19. And then we'll close with some patients with metabolic derangements like DKA. Again, this is jam-packed, and I highly encourage you to go and look at the article that Dr. Pedigo authored for us at EB Medicine on the ventilator management of adults. And while you're at the website, I strongly recommend you look at the accompanying pediatric emergency medicine article on the ventilator management of children. Both are exceptionally important and so relevant to our practice, especially at a time like this. So here is Dr. Pedigo for part two. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about our acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS patients. Uh, now drawing the distinction for right now between the standard ARDS and the coronavirus or COVID-19 associated lung disease, for our standard ARDS patient, how are we needing to change our vent settings there compared to the previous populations we just talked about? Start is still going to be for tidal volume, six milliliters per kilogram of predicted body weight. Um, your respiratory rate is going to be what is necessary uh, based on your patient. If they have a metabolic acidosis, maybe they'll be slightly higher. If they don't, maybe it'll be closer to a normal respiratory rate. Uh, the main thing is your FiO2 and PEEP you can kind of consider linked. So there's also a table in the publication which uh, reflects, you know, the ARDS net uh, protocol where as you increase uh, your FiO2, you should be also stepwise increasing your PEEP. So if you have someone with ARDS, they should not be on someone like with an FiO2 of 100% and a PEEP of 5 because um, that just means that your FiO2 is too high for your PEEP setting um, because when you look at these trials, which looks at um, these PEEP tables, you know, if you have an FiO2 of 100%, you should have, be having a PEEP uh, somewhere between 20 and 24, which is probably going to be much higher than most people are used to, um, but is going to be um, the recommended PEEP strategy for people with ARDS. And when we talk about PEEP, we're talking about the positive end expiratory pressure in the table. Uh, in the article, there is a progression there. So for every step in FiO2 that you take, you also take a step in PEEP. And is the thought process there that you're attempting to recruit more alveoli as you increase your PEEP with each one of those steps? Yeah. So as the severity of your uh, ARDS increases, um, then you will need higher and higher PEEPs to recruit uh, currently collapsed alveoli and have them participating in gas exchange. And so, um, you know, more mild ARDS, you may not need as high of a PEEP, but you also, that means you should also not need as high of an FiO2. And so as the severity of disease increases, both the PEEP and FiO2 requirements, both should increase linearly. And then for our COVID-19 patients, how does some of this change or does it? No idea. Uh, so... <laughs> This is a dynamic thing and whatever you hear today, depending on when you're listening to it, uh, will either be validated as correct or completely incorrect and ridiculous. And I'm not sure uh, which one it'll end up being. So 
there have been described a subset of people with COVID-associated ARDS or CARDS um, who have very typical ARDS. And when I say typical ARDS, uh, I mean very low lung um, compliance, um, so very high elasticity. Uh, and those are people that more typically reflect what you think about when you think about people with ARDS from other etiologies. Um, so that means that those people are going to have uh, very low lung compliance and they are going to need high PEEP um, to keep things participating in gas exchange. But there's also been described a relatively high compliance lung physiology in some people who have very, very low oxygen saturations. And so there are some arguments that in those populations who have high lung compliance, that means that their lungs can expand easily. Uh, and using the same high peep strategies that you might be using in uh, ARDS may over distend those lungs because they're already so easy to inflate, uh, using those higher peep uh, strategies may actually cause additional barotrauma uh, because they more closely represent the compliance of normal-ish lungs. So we don't know exactly, and there's you know a lot of trials going on to try to figure that out, but um, as of now, I would talk to your institutions, intensivists, uh, and decide what is the best strategy based on the available ev evidence. And you're likely going to have to revisit that frequently uh, as the landscape of data change. Is there a way to recognize the low versus high compliance lung patient standing at the bedside with any of the monitoring tools or labs at our disposal? There is, but I would caution trying to routinely measure static compliance on patients because that's a relatively advanced thing. And um, so it might be outside of the scope of what most people would be comfortable with. There is a way to measure compliance because compliance just tells you, you know, how much is your pressure change as the volume in your lungs change. Um, but I think that uh, is probably something that should in most cases uh, be done with expert consultation. Yeah. So at that point, really, our, our critical care physicians and our, our ICU team is heavily involved in some of that decision making. And that gets to be beyond the scope of your typical emergency department management. Yeah, I think that sounds reasonable for most people. Um, I think that, you know, there are certainly times in which as an emergency physician, you are going to be faced with someone with refractory hypoxemia from ARDS despite the traditional high PEEP strategy. And in that case, there are a few additional things you can do, um, which is within our scope of practice, uh, to be able to improve that hypoxemia. So tell me, what kinds of things are we talking about? Um, sure. So if you have someone with ARDS and despite you know high PEEP and maximal FiO2, uh, they're still not oxygenating appropriately, uh, in general, there would be two overarching strategies that you might use. Uh, one would be prone positioning. Um, so if you can prone position the patient, uh, that's relatively difficult in our ED setting often, although now because of COVID, uh, people actually do pretty well prone with COVID. And so uh, emergency departments are unfortunately becoming more and more um, facile with proning people. But the 
Proceva study was a huge multi-center randomized trial that actually showed um, somewhere around a 15% absolute mortality reduction with prone positioning and severe ARDS. Now those are in ICUs that are quote unquote, like professional proners. And so they are, that's what they do. That's part of their practice. And they have that down to an art. And in the ED, it's going to be a little bit different because if you, before COVID, if you would say, oh, let's prone this patient, people are going to be like, what are you talking about? Because it's likely that you've never prone someone before. Uh, and so there is an increased risk of endotracheal tube obstruction, pressure sores, loss of vascular access. Because you imagine if you have some lines with an IV in them and you flip them, you know, you may lose that IV in the process. Uh, and so there are risks, um, but you have much more dorsal lung mass than ventral lung mass, and you're going to have much better, uh, a larger number of aerated segments if you prone the patient, uh, which is likely to improve your oxygenation. When you're proning a patient, what's actually happening with their endotracheal tube? Is, there, is their head turned sideways? Are you a special pillow for this thing to come out of their mouth into the stretcher? What are we talking about? So yeah, it depends if you have a, uh, there's actually proning beds that exist, um, but most of the time in the emergency department, if you're doing that, you're not going to have that. Um, and so usually the, yeah, the patient's head will just be gently turned to the side or, you know, you'd have to come up with some sort of uh, contraption to do it yourself. Um, but up in the ICU, at least in our ICU, they actually have invested in um, beds which are designed for prone position uh, and therefore are um, supposedly better. I actually don't know if there's data to support that, but I, I mean, it makes sense that they would be better if they're designed for a patient because all of our beds are designed for patients in the supine position. Now, when we talk about prone positioning, we're talking about completely prone or mostly could they be at an angle? Could we prop them up on some pillows to help with the tubes and lines? How much, how much prone are we talking? Uh, that's a good question. In the ED, it's funny because um, in most of those studies, they needed a like 12 hour stabilization period prior to proning so that, you know, we don't have as much data if proning in the ED improves outcomes. I actually can't say like what is the exact thing that is definitely going to improve outcomes. All of, A lot of this is kind of surrogate markers that it works in the ICU. Therefore, it probably works in the ED. Um, so especially with, with COVID and with a higher amount of people who likely will require prone positioning, I think it's worth discussing with your operations and intensivists people to see how you can actually facilitate that in the ED for if and when, uh, it's required in your setting. And, and honestly, you know, depending on your COVID volumes is almost certainly, um, going to be in, you know, we've had you know, in recent memory, we'd had like three or four patients in a row, you know, in different rooms, like next to each other, all being proned. And so uh, it's, it's something that I had not seen until, uh, you know, the last year, but um, something that likely you should work out with your hospital to get everyone on the same page on on how and with what equipment you're going to do it. We actually had are, um, this is mildly ironic and somewhat stereotypical, but actually our proning team in the beginning of COVID uh, was actually our orthopedic surgery team. Uh, they actually went and helped with the proning. Um, and so that was very nice of them. Uh, but that was our, our proning team. Fantastic. That's actually a really good idea to involve some of your non-emergency medical staff or especially other teams that may not be as busy because their surgical volume's lower in uh, helping out, especially with these kinds of critical maneuvers, where I'm sure there's a benefit to just having a team who is trained in doing this all day long to come down and 
assist with something that seems it doesn't seem like it's talking about much to flip a patient on their abdomen until you realize, well, we have cardiac leads, we have two lines, we have a central line, we have the ET tube and the ET tube holder and the oxygen supply and the vent tubing. And there, there is a lot involved in flipping a patient, even uh, just past 90 degrees, that uh, that gets quite challenging, especially if all you have is a, an ED nurse or two ED nurses. That's certainly not an undertaking I'd recommend with just two people. Yeah, and you do mention an important thing about things like central lines. If you're going to place any of those lines, ideally do it prior to proning because the logistics of placing a line in a prone patient is uh, quite challenging. Uh, although one of our surgeons, uh, I did see do it once and uh, they placed an IJ while a patient was prone and that was very impressive. Was it ultrasound guided? Yes. I was just thinking how much more complex that's going to make line placement but for the ultrasound, I think that would probably be impossible for me. So thankfully, we, we have access to ultrasound. If you're listening to this and you don't, sounds like it might be time to invest, <laughs> past time to invest. Yeah, the, um, the alternative, if you um, either can't or don't have the staff or logistics to prone someone, would be to switch to a different ventilator mode uh, called APRV or airway pressure release ventilation. And that is a mode of ventilation that in at least one trial um, has been shown to be beneficial in severe ARDS uh, when traditional high PEEP strategies are ineffective in appropriately oxygenating the patient. So as a general introduction, this is definitely something where you would want expert consultation. Um, but APRV uh, or airway pressure release ventilation uh, actually does exactly what it says it does. It ventilates the pressure patient by airway pressure release. So the pressure is held at a high pressure. So usually around 30 or so, um, which is quite high. And it, if you imagine it as putting someone on CPAP at a pressure of 30, that is basically what this ventilation mode is, except it very, very briefly releases that pressure to allow for brief exhalation and then immediately reapplies that pressure before alveoli have a chance to de-recruit and collapse. So the vast majority of your breath is spent at this, what we call P-high or high pressure, which improves oxygenation substantially because your mean airway pressures are now much higher because the high pressure is almost always present, but at the expense of ventilation. So people can tidal and breathe on their own at the higher pressure and the lower pressure. And so it actually is also associated with decreased sedation requirements, but is a relatively complex mode of ventilation that uh, will, in almost all cases, unless you decide that this is you want this to be in your wheelhouse, will be something that is associated with expert consultation. And this population of patients is awake for this kind of mode, or these are generally sedated and potentially paralyzed? So for APRV, if you were to use it, ideally you wouldn't use it while they are paralyzed only because one of the benefits of APRV is that they can actually breathe at those pressures. And so at the time in which it's held at that high pressure, they can actually breathe in and out just like you would with CPAP. But this is just a much higher pressure than you would ever reasonably consider putting someone on CPAP on. But they can still breathe in and out at that high pressure. And that is not possible, of course, uh, if they are paralyzed. Mm. And so in general, people are 
breathing in and out at that higher pressure and technically at the lower pressure, but at the lower pressure, it's a fraction of a second. So, well, I sincerely hope that I never have a patient who requires that mode of ventilation because that means we're in a host of trouble with their, with their clinical scenario. Uh, unfortunately, I've done it multiple times in the past few months because it also seems to work well for uh, COVID-related ARDS and people who have low lung compliance. And so it is, uh, it's, it may be coming. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> You're like me and you live in Los Angeles, it's already here, but... You know, maybe you in North Florida, you got another month or two before you're going to get wrecked. That's right. All right. So in our patients with m severe metabolic derangements, there are some accommodations we're going to have to make for the ventilator settings as well. Let's walk through those real briefly. If you're intubating someone who has a severe metabolic acidosis, so diabetic ketoacidosis, et cetera, what you'll usually notice is pre-intubation, they're going to have a pretty low pH. Um, but they're also going to have a pretty low PaCO2 because they're going to be doing their best to try to get their pH as close to normal as possible by blowing off all that additional CO2. And so these are the people with DK who have, you know, Kuzmal respiration. So they're breathing very deeply and very quickly. And they're trying their best to jettison off as much volatile acid, which is your CO2, as possible because they have such a bad metabolic acidosis. This is their respiratory compensation. And if when you intubate this person, especially if you use something like rocuronium, where they are not going to overbreathe your ventilator for 30 or 40 minutes, perhaps, if you set a quote unquote normal respiration rate, then you have removed their respiratory compensation and their pH is likely to precipitously decline. And that is likely to lead uh, to a cardiac arrest. And so when you have someone with a severe metabolic acidosis, the mantra is to match their pre-intubation minute ventilation. And you would do that, uh, again, predominantly uh, by setting a higher respiratory rate. With these patients, because without ARDS, six and eight milliliters per kilogram are both appear safe, then I would likely choose eight milliliters per kilogram just to get them a slightly higher minute ventilation because it's still a safe lung protective tidal volume. And then uh, do a substantially higher respiratory rate to keep them breathing off that CO2 until you've had time to resuscitate them and fix their underlying metabolic acidosis, which then will allow you to decrease their minute ventilation. And when you say a substantially higher respiratory rate, are you matching it to their pre-intubation respiratory rate or getting close to it? Usually I'll try to at least get close. It's hard because if you notice on these patients who are pre-intubation, if you just look at them, they're actually taking way higher tidal volumes than we would actually consider safe for um, setting it on our ventilator. And so it is important that the vast majority of that's going to have to be with an increased respiratory rate. I remember I had someone with a combination of DKA, sepsis, and renal failure who had a pH of 6.9 and a CO2 of 10, right? And so their bicarb was like nearly zero, it was incalculably low. And pre-intubation, we had them on BiPAP. And I looked uh, and just to see, okay, let's see how I'm going to match this person's minute ventilation. And the person was breathing like 45 times a minute with 1200 ml tidal volumes on the BiPAP. And so wow. clearly there is no way that I can do that. 
Um, but I'm going to try my best to allow them to still have a respiratory compensation and then try to address as rapidly as possible the underlying cause uh, for their metabolic acidosis. But if this person that you intubate had a PaCO2 of 10, and then you set normal, quote unquote, um, ventilator parameters and their PaCO2 was 40, that would drop their pH by 0.24 because for every 10 that your CO2 rises, your pH will drop by 0.08 with an acute respiratory acidosis. And so if their pH was 6.9 pre-intubation, now it's going to be 6.66, which is probably going to be close to being incompatible with life, uh, if not incompatible with life. So make sure you allow them to continue their um, respiratory compensation for their severe metabolic acidosis until you've resuscitated them out of it. Now, in that specific disaster or patient scenario you just described, you already know before intubating that patient that you're not going to be able to match that kind of ventilation with your ventilator. So you're setting it to what, 8 mLs per kilo and bumping up their respiratory rate to 40 and then trying to buffer the respiratory acidosis with with medicines in that scenario? So I think 40 is reasonable. And if you get higher, substantially higher than that, even people with normal lung physiology may breath sack. So I would just look out to make sure that that's not happening. Um, but when you're talking about respiratory compensation, uh, it kind of asymptotes out. And it's like, what I mean by that is like, if you're breathing let's say 15 times a minute, right? And you have a set tidal volume and your PaCO2 is 40. To get it to 20, so a 20 drop, it's pretty good. You have to double their minute ventilation because they're they're inversely proportional. To get it from 20 to 10, which is only a 10 drop now, you have to double it again. And to get it from 10 to five, you'd have to double it again. And there's a certain point where that's just not feasible and you get diminishing returns with increased minute ventilation because you've driven your PaCO2 down to as low as is reasonable without choosing astronomical ventilator settings. So as long as you're doing pretty good, you're going to get the majority of the benefit because doubling your minute ventilation to get you from a CO2 of like 12 to 6 is likely going to cause more harm because that's actually a pretty small uh, increase in pH that they'll get from that decrease in PaCO2. Uh, but you'll need twice the respiratory rate to get there. So we need to find some other way to get them there. Yeah, you got to, you know, if it's okay, just get them on their insulin drip. You know, if it's renal failure, get them dialyzed. If it's sepsis, aggressively fluid resuscitate them. Um, you know, sepsis rarely causes that substantial metabolic acidosis. Usually it's it's something else like, like DK or renal failure. One more thing I want to touch on uh, before we end. There is an outstanding section in the article discussing uh, waveform capnography and demonstrating some of the different patterns and how to recognize them uh, and why they're clinically important. So there is a there is a normal output pattern, uh, which is the first one described there. And then there are a couple of others. Can you walk me through understanding that, of course, we're not looking at this, we're just listening to it, but just briefly touch on why or how that's helpful at the bedside? Sure. So waveform capnography gives you a graphical information about exhaled CO2, which is why it's waveform capnography. So it's a graph, right? And when you talk about quantitative 
capnometry, that's the output that just gives you a number. So at the end of every breath, it'll be like 36 or 40, but it doesn't give you any graphical information. And then semi-quantitative capnometry is what we're all very familiar with um, when the color changes, um, you know, between uh, purple and um, yellow. Um, I had to think about that for a sec, because actually with COVID, we actually do not use those anymore because it's uh, we want to create a closed system under the ventilator. So we actually do not we no longer are bagging and using our semi-quantitative capnometer. We actually just intubate them and hook them up to the vent for their first breath with an inline waveform capnography. And that's how we're gonna verify ET2 placement. Uh, the semi-quantitative one is semi-quantitative because like the more color change you get, the more exhaled CO2 there is. Uh, but the quote unquote best one, the one that gives you the most information is the graphical waveform capnography. And so normally, um, your CO2 will rapidly diffuse and you're going to have kind of a rectangular appearance uh, to your uh, waveform capnography. If someone has obstructive physiology as they exhale, it's going to take them longer to get that CO2 out because it's taking them longer to get air overall out. And instead of a nice box, you're going to see more of a, a shark fin is what they uh, classically call it because the upslope of your exhaled CO2 is going to be, sh is going to take longer um, because you're not going to get the rapidity of CO2 exhalation that you otherwise would with normal lungs. And so that can be something where if you intubate someone and you see that, that just means there's a component of obstructive physiology. And uh, that may be helpful information. And similarly, if you're intubating someone because of cardiac arrest, if you see an abrupt rise in that end tidal uh, or their waveform capnography, uh, then that is usually pretty strongly associated with return to spontaneous circulation. And so sometimes we will use that to be like, oh, we probably are going to have return to spontaneous circulation on, on our next pulse check. And so, you know, we've, I've had patients who had almost certainly pulmonary emboli as the etiology of their arrest, and we needed time to circulate the thrombolytics. And so we actually just kept them on the Lucas and their, you know, PACO2 was 10. And we were just like, we're just going to let it go. And we're not going to do pulse checks if the exhaled CO2 remains 10, because it is unlikely at that pulse check that we would have a pulse, but we would be stopping circulation of our, our thrombolytics, which might actually have a possibility of uh, allowing for this patient to eventually get return to spontaneous circulation. Great. And that's a fantastic example of some of the ways that our non-invasive measurements have actually been clinically helpful at the bedside. There are more in the article, and I highly recommend you go and look at the figures in the article to understand how the clinical scenario can match what you're looking at on the capnography, and you can get a quick idea of uh, your patient's status there. It really is a very, very helpful tool. Well, thanks very much, Ryan, for taking the time to explain all of this. This was a jam-packed, solid hour of fantastic and very applicable information that I'm going to have to go back and listen to probably six or seven times to digest, uh, especially now in the midst of a pandemic. If you're out there and having to manage ventilators and you're not accustomed to doing so, then this is a great time to go and read over the article. Uh, there is also this month a matching article for pediatric ventilator management as well that I highly encourage you go and read. And thanks so much, Ryan, for taking the time to teach us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure uh, being on. And that's a wrap. 
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Amplify. As always, I encourage you to go to ebmedicine.net and look at this month's articles and the voluminous library of information regarding emergency medicine that's available there at your fingertips. And if you have any feedback to share with us, write us at amplify at ebmedicine.net or call the number in the show notes and leave us a message. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Eshoo. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>